We have to do that. So <laughs> we are blessed today to have Dr. Dina Dye join us. Uh, Dr. Dye was raised in a conservative Jewish home in Ottawa, Canada. She holds a, a doctorate in ministry in Hebraic studies and Christianity and has been connecting the roots of the gospels and the epistles to the Torah for over 40 years. That makes you look old and you're not that old. It can't be over 40 years. Through her ministry, Foundations in Torah, which is foundationsintorah.org. She speaks regularly in conference venues for congregations on the radio and is a programmer for both Israel TV Network and Revive TV. Additionally, she hosts a podcast called Returning to Eden. Much of... Uh, uh, Dr. Dye's research revolves around temple studies and the concept of kingship, which she believes holds an important key to understanding the Bible. Her books, The Temple Revealed in Creation and The Temple Revealed in the Garden, are available on Amazon. I happen to know that the third one is about to come out also. No pressure. <laughs> and uh, Dina is currently executive director of of. On Fire Prayer, a national prayer ministry dedicated to restoring the nation. If you guys go to the Rooted Cafe, kafe.com, go where it says events and resources. If you scroll down to the books, we did put one of the books so that you could click and go to Amazon and find all the rest of them. We wanted to make it easy for you. So that's in there for you. Dr. Dye, I have to pin you here so you can, they, they don't want to look at me anymore. Welcome. The floor is yours. We appreciate you. Thanks for being with us here from New Mexico. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah, we're so, good now. Uh, okay, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invite and uh, what an honor. And I know there's ladies all over the world listening. So I hope to do it justice today. I, I imagine you guys had a wonderful day. I sort of uh, kind of checked out today, but a little behind the eight ball with my family and, and some of the other things going on with us. But uh, I just, uh, you know, this is a great opportunity. So some of you may not even be familiar with my ministry and kind of what I do. So I'm going to introduce you to that. Hopefully, uh, you know, my goal is to try to simplify things to, uh, I've been at this a really long time, um, as Charlie uh, shared, uh, going over 40 years now of doing this kind of research. So I like to say that my work shows you the possibilities where you can go down the road. Uh, you might not be where I am now. Some of it may not make sense to you, but the hope here is to plant a seed for you so that it will bear fruit, you know, farther on down. When I was asked to do this, I, I you know, while she waits, I, I just, I kind of didn't really know where to go with it, but I know some of you are familiar with the concept of betrothal that took place with Israel at the mountain, Mount Sinai. And it occurred to me that there's two really important events for Shavuot in the scriptures. And one of them, of course, is at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, uh, giving to Moses. And we're going to talk about that in a little more detail. And the other is Yeshua's uh, ascension on the Mount of Olives, because that also took place around the time of Shavuot. So I was kind of thinking about the, the idea of two mountains, you know, what went on between the time of Sinai and the time of the Mount of Olives, these two events. 
And of course, an awful lot went on. And I can't, you know, I'm not going to be able to go through all of that. But mountains are really key in scripture. And I hope as I go through this, it'll help you understand. Unfortunately, for us in modern day Christianity, and even as we see in Messianic Judaism and Hebrew roots, etc., we have a tendency to take everything literally, and we have a tendency to think that everything was just written to us. So my goal in this is kind of to take us back to the time of the ancient Near East world. What were the writers trying to communicate to the people at that time? What would they have understood about all of this? And then how can we make an application for today? So this idea of a life between the two mountains, the concept of mountains is very different to the ancient world than it is to us. And like everything that I do, I always go back to the beginning because Genesis chapter one is going to be our foundation for everything. I always say that if you can understand the first chapter, uh, Genesis one, you're probably going to understand the rest of the Bible. Unfortunately, today we we look at Genesis one through our own lens, don't we? Um, it's hard for us to go back to the ancient world. We don't. Un the other unfortunate part is a lot of scholars have not been able to make the bridge between the regular folks and themselves. And so they kind of sit in their ivory towers and write stuff that makes no sense to us. And so I hope to serve as that bridge between the world of scholarship and kind of we the people, the folks, if you will. So uh, if we go, go back to the very beginning, I know most of you probably know the first verse of the Bible in Hebrew, in the beginning, Bereshit Barai Elohim et Hashemim et Haaretz. And I'm going to probably upend some of your paradigms, <laughs> uh, hopefully that I do. But the concept of in the beginning for us, uh, we put it on a timeline. So we're going to start somewhere, that's the beginning, and then we're going to kind of move step by step. And you all understand that that is very much Greek thinking and that in Hebrew thinking, we think in cycles and patterns. But if we take the very first word of the Bible, Bereshit, and you could literally break it down and find all kinds of words in it. I think one time I sat down and found about 70 different words just with inside the word Bereshit. But one of the expressions in there that I found to be most important is what uh, it would be bait roche and i'm sure many of you know that bait bite is a house and roche means head so the head of the house so in the beginning is really speaking of the coming forth of a house and of course we know god has built the the, the cosmos as a place of his presence so he can dwell in the midst of the cosmos and then as we get down to a sort of miniature, we have the, the garden, we move through to Noah's Ark and uh, onto uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple on Mount Zion. So there's that God would dwell in, in, the, in the midst of his people. That's how he would do it. So we take it from this big view, this 50,000 uh, mile view up above to coming down to the to the present and being in the presence of his people. But the key to all of it is the house. And even the very, one of the very first words, bara, which 
we know means to create. And we really only see that word being used for God, for Yahweh himself. But within the word bara, you also find the idea of some, to separate or to divide. And as you go through Genesis chapter one, you see that things are divided or separated. And that's for a purpose. So the concept that we're going to have all through the Bible is this idea of separating in order to join together and to produce life. So we know bara, creating, has everything to do with life. And that's the purpose of the house. God creates, builds a house for his presence in order to produce life. Now, that's exactly the same thing that we have for the family, that when the, we had Adam and, and Hava, Eve was separated from him in order for the two to join together to build a house, create life. And this will come to bear. We're going to talk a little bit about kingship in this. So with, within bara to create, we have another word, brit. Uh, we can find that in Bereshit as well, which some of you might know as a covenant. So the idea of a covenant is to cut or to separate in order to join. It's one of those really cool words in Hebrew that actually means two sides of the coin, to cut and also to join together. So the idea of creating is where the two become one. And for a number of scholars, this is the original covenant that God made. And we could call it the creation covenant. It's not really an expression we find in scripture. Uh, you might know it as the eternal covenant, the everlasting covenant, the covenant of peace. But this is the original covenant. And the original covenant takes place between God and his people. So we see God sort of in the male terms and his people as female. Again, separating in order to join together. So the process of creation is a process of separation. And you might recognize the, the term Kedusha from Kadosh, which is, to, is the concept of holiness. But the idea of holiness means that two things are separated. They're, not, uh, they're separated for a purpose, for a function. And so we have a division between that which is holy and that which is common. So the idea is to separate the two. And there is, there is within that the idea that the two would join together and become one because common elements, it doesn't mean they're full of sin and they're negative. And you, you, you understand as we look at the days of the week that you have the days in which you work, the six days. And then on the seventh, that's a day that is Kedusha or set apart as holy. Well, it doesn't mean that the six days are bad. It just means that there is a status separation between the two, between the six days and the seventh. Um, it's, it's very interesting in, uh, you can read this in some of the Jewish writings, but uh, a man will call uh, his wife his house. So the house becomes extremely important. Now, in the Bible, the concept of the house has go is going to do more with a dynasty building a dynasty, because right out of the gate, we're establishing kingship. Uh, Adam, who is the son of God and, and the first to serve God in that capacity, and God places him in the garden as a ruler. And the Bible is very clear about that, that he has given dominion over that sacred space in order to rule. 
So really, the, the Bible is the story of from Adam to second Adam, the line of the kings. And so what Adam is doing is he's building a dynasty. That's what a house is. We see that talked a lot about with King David, uh, for example. He's, he, we refer back to the, to the dynasty of King David or the house of David. Remember that Yeshua would be the son of David. So it's, it's not, I, I hope that you can see this in much larger terms. Again, that we're dealing with the concept of kingship, of building a house. It's a living house. Uh, it will also be a physical house. But the living house is for seed to come forth, heirs to the throne that keep go as we went, say, from Adam to Noah and on down. It, you can read the different genealogies in, in uh, the New Testament. Matthew, for example, we see that is the royal dynasty of Yeshua, the Messiah. He is of that dynasty of building that house. And again, a man's wife is called his house. So when Yeshua. When God himself, Yahweh, is referring to his people, Israel, as his wife, they are also his house. And that's why we see the expression, the house of Israel or the house of Judah, because this is dynasty building language. So the, the temple is actually a feminine term because it's a house, a bayit house, even though it's a masculine word, but we won't go off there. But the idea of the house is feminine. So the idea of the house is filled with the presence of God. We, you might recognize the term, the Shekinah, the Shekinah, which actually isn't even in the scripture, but it's the divine presence. So it's very interesting that the divine presence is actually feminine as well. And if we look at the expression for the kingdom, the Malkut Shemaim, that's also feminine. Uh, Malkut is feminine, Shemaim is masculine. So we see this coming together of that expression. So the kingdom of heaven. So there's a lot, uh, the Ruach HaKodesh, for example, the Holy Spirit, which is the divine presence, is also feminine. Uh, I'd like to just read this quote. I think you should have this in your notes. Uh, it's by a New Testament scholar. His name is Jerome Nehring. And he says, the ancients, now going back to the ancient world, they perceived the cosmos, the, the ordered universe, as totally divided. Here, see that expression again of the separation. And so they describe parallel male and female worlds in which certain places, roles, tasks, and objects are deemed appropriate to each gender. So this is right out of the gate in Genesis 1. In fact, if you were to go down uh, the days of creation, and you see the separation between heaven and earth and day and night and dark and light and waters above and waters below and, and even uh, Adam and Chava, you will see that all of those elements are male and female. So right, this is the house building right out of the gate. And this is why what's going on in our world is uh, the insanity that we, that in which there is no longer male or female or you know, uh, homosexual relationships. I mean, we can argue the morality of it for another day, but the idea is that these acts, these are violate the very nature of what creation is, because the point of creation is for two to come together and produce life and to build a house. And so that's not possible with those kinds of uh, relationships. So again, you know, the moral thing is one thing, but it, the very nature of who God is of house building uh, is out the window, and it's the reason uh, 
uh, he is so grieved over this. And it is the reason I think, you know, creation is infused in everything. And so we have, we must fight for that. So this, again, I mentioned is called the, the creation covenant. And uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go into it really much more than that. But within the, the uniting of male and female principles, everything is related to betrothal and marriage. And so that with this and she waits concept the bet between the betrothal and the full state of marriage, the idea, even though it says in Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, we have a ten we want to take the heavens and the earth literally don't we so in our minds heaven's somewhere up there and, and earth is here but actually that idea of covenant is uh it's the ancient world did, does not use does not think of the rational real world in the same way we do so for us heaven is this space a literal physical space up in the air but for the ancients Heaven is a domain that belongs to rulership and earth was the domain that belonged to people, humanity. And so heaven and earth are separated because the, you know, the, the, the elites live in heaven. That was the world of the gods in the, in the ancient times. And then the humans who were, you know, nothing to the gods lived on earth. And there was, you know, nothing, in, there was no connection between the two. So the priest would serve as that mediator between the two. But what God is saying is that he is going to join together with his people. This was unheard of in the ancient world. You understand that the gods thought humans were slaves. They enslaved them to do their dirty work for them. And there was no idea of a relationship between the gods and the folks. But in God's economy, what Yahweh is doing is he's creating a relationship. So his, his world, if you will, is represented by the concept of heaven. And we, the people, are is represented by earth. But he wants to join the two together. Now, one of the ways that heaven and earth are connected is through the temple or the house. So the temple was always placed, if you will, on top of a mountain which represented the connecting point between heaven and earth in order to make a covenant relationship between the two. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth is a statement, a covenantal statement between two parties, heaven and earth, but between God and his people. So I hope that makes sense. And again, I want you to try to think in big, big picture that we're talking about house building. How is a house built? And of course, we, the best example for house building is a family. That's the easiest for us to understand that a husband and wife come together and they're going to build a house through their seed. That's the most logical thing and, and makes the most sense. I would say that um, this creation language that we have in Genesis 1.1, the Bible is infused with stories that contain creation language. Virtually every story has in it creation language, although we could look at it as recreation because we have the original creation in Genesis 1.1. And then after that, everything's a recreation. So the garden is set aside. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're, they're supposed to produce fruit, not eat the fruit. 
And after they um, disobey God and they're exiled from the garden, then we go through a process of recreation. So that's the same with the story of Noah. He builds a boat, but he's building a place for the presence of God. And then after that, we move into the tabernacle. So everything, the whole of the Bible from beginning to end is about God building a place for his presence. And he has to keep doing it. It's kind of like Groundhog Day. He keeps doing it over and over again because we keep failing. So this creation language is tied to building and rebuilding a place for the presence of God for his temple. And so the Bible is filled with creation language. So when you start seeing language that um, speaks of the matriarchs, for example, being barren, so that's decreation because if they're barren, they can't be with their husbands producing life. And then when they, when life comes forth, for example, you know, Sarah at the age of 90, she's been barren and now life is going to be come forth from her. This is rebuilding the house. Okay. So we think of it as a physical house, but I want you to think of it as a dynastic house. And so in order for that house to be rebuilt, to, to be rebuilt and to take us all the way to Yeshua the Messiah, the matriarchs have to be able to bear children all the way down. So this is what we would call creation language. So creation language in the Bible can be seen through marriage and birth and the seed and dynasty building. The place where this, where it happens is in the temple or in the house. Uh, the house starts out as a cosmic house, the ordered universe, and then it works its way down to when we get to uh, Mount Zion, Mount Zion, of course, Solomon is the one who builds a temple for God. Now, inside every temple in the ancient world is an inner chamber. Now, for the gods, they would go in there and have their consort and make baby gods. But the inner chamber was the place where life comes forth, where two become one. So we see that kind of when you think about the temple, you think about who was able to go into the inner chamber. That was the, the high priest. And so in that place, he would come in and, of course, he would mediate on behalf of Israel to, to set order in the camp because, uh, of course, it had... Uh, it was in chaos when they violated the commandments of God. And so it's interesting to me that the high priest, in order for him to serve in the temple and to perform the rituals, for example, on Yom Kippur, he had to be married. In fact, the priests were married. This is a very important point. You don't necessarily see this in the other parts of the ancient world, but in, in the economy that God has created for Israel, they were to be married in order to to produce life. So I hope that makes sense. And I'm probably going to beat a dead horse here, but I want you to tie this idea of building a house with building a place for the presence of God with building a dynasty. And that's going to be our story as we go from Mount Sinai to the Mount of Olives. We are building a dynasty. And obviously uh, Moses is the one who will go up on the mountain and he'll receive the tablets of stone. The children of Israel are at the bottom of the mountain, if you'll recall, and the mountain takes the shape of a uh, kind of like the garden, only a vertical. We, we, the tabernacle, for example, we, we see on a horizontal, but actually, in fact, the, it's a vertical. And so 
the garden itself was a mountain and you can read about that in Ezekiel 28. So at the top of the mountain where Moses entered into the presence of God represented the Holy of Holies. And then halfway down the mountain, you'll recall that the elders, that's where that was sort of their domain. So that would be uh, as you entered into various parts of the temple, probably into the holy place instead of the Holy of Holies. And then the, the folks, the children of Israel were at the bottom of the mountain. So if you can think of it, uh, the mountain as a structure of a temple and the, the entering in, and of course, certain ones could go to certain places and they had different functions, et cetera, et cetera. So this is all related to, uh, to the, the, the concept of the temple and building a house and who could go where and do what. And so Moses was the one who could enter into that inner chamber. Remember, uh, I believe it's Exodus 24 where the, the paving stones were uh, sapphire and he approached God. We would call this the oracle of God. It's the place where God spoke. And so Moses was the one to receive and he received the tablets of stone. In the ancient world, they would call them the edut or the tablets of destiny. And what what they, they were were the governing documents. They were, this was how Moses as the ruler over Israel was going to govern this newly formed, this newly created nation. And we'll talk about the new creation nation in, in, a, in a few minutes. And so he, the, the point of the Torah, the point of the documents was to bring order to the camp because without governing documents, without a foundation, without the instructions of God, you have chaos in the camp. And so this is another sweeping theme in the scriptures is the idea of order and chaos. So in the beginning, uh, when God built a house, he created order. So you're going to find in the scriptures as well, when there's a temple standing, and that meant that the king was on the throne, the king was responsible to maintain order and stability in the community. So if we... You think about when the, uh, the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, they hauled off the best and the brightest, and they destroyed the temple. That is a recipe for disaster, and it represents chaos because the king is no longer on the throne. You remember the last king of Judah is Zedekiah, and that's the end of the line, it looks like. So you think how important it was they went into exile in Babylon, and it looks like the line is cut off, the dynastic line. This is serious. And so we have this period in which they're in exile, there's no king on the throne, and things are in chaos. So when, you, when a temple is standing and the king is on the throne, there is order in the camp. So when we go back to Sinai, what is it that they built in the wilderness? Well, they built the tabernacle as the place of the presence. And Moses functioned as a king, if you will. Now, it doesn't really say that, but he and Aaron and Miriam are working in tandem as like prophet, priest, and king, if you will, to, um, to govern the camp and keep order. So uh, as I, I want to reiterate, the importance of order and order comes when there's a house built. So think about the family. 
there is order in the family when there is a father and a husband and a wife and a mother and they come together and they bring forth their children. And so then they need governing documents, if you will, to operate their home. Um, Proverbs is a great example. Not only it was given to Solomon, uh, well, written by Solomon, the Proverbs on how he would govern his kingdom, but it also applies to how you would govern your own home. So you look at our world today, and one of the reasons, probably the main reason, it's in such chaos is because of the breakdown of the family. So the role of the father, males, tox toxic masculinity, the role of men has been upended, the role of women has been upended. There are many single women who are trying to raise children. There are men that have abdicated their responsibility. And this, what happens is it is a reflection on the social order. You can't separate those two things. Uh, as, you, as the breakdown of a, of a society comes by the breakdown of a family, chaos ensues. And we're just, we're seeing this on a mass scale around the world. You can't, the, the, the way the family operates is the way God operates in the beginning, as he has a covenant relationship with his, with his people, who he regards as, as feminine, and they together will bring forth life. And so this is very foundational, and it's, uh, I think it's critical that we, that we understand and recognize what's going on. So Moses, in essence, is is given the oracle of God, he's given the word of God, and now he has to impart it to uh, the nation. And now they have to set up a structure that's going to work, a social structure. That cannot be separated from how a nation is governed. I mean, they're a nation, they're a political entity. And in order for them to function properly, they're going to need a foundation. And uh, so Moses and company basically set that up. And so uh, this, it's very important uh, to understand this. And of course, this all took place at uh, Mount Sinai. So up until that point, they're not actually a nation. Okay, so there, we see individuals, Abraham has come from the Ur of the Chaldees, and uh, he sets up shop in the land of Israel. But everything, we start out with families, and then we move to clans. And then we move to tribes, and then we move to the nation. So this is Israel becoming a new creation, a new creation nation. Sounds good. So uh, I did want to mention something. I want to go back for just a second. And I had talked about the essence of the home. The essence of the house was the divine presence, and the divine presence is feminine. We have the Ruach HaKodesh, for example, the spirit, the essence, that divine essence is, is feminine. You might be familiar with the expression, the bot kol. It's the voice of God, but it's feminine. Once again, bot is daughter, bait is house. They're the, the same uh, letters. So the voice of God is expressed as feminine. So in the home, the wife is seen as that same she is like the, she functions as the spirit in the home. She, she is the voice in the home. So she is the one who helps her husband when he, you know, as if the voice of God is coming through her to help her husband lead the family. So he's not ruling over the family, 
but together they they work in tandem together to make the family healthy. And I would just throw this out here for now. One of the reasons I believe the church is so dysfunctional, uh, when you make the church, whatever organization, ma male-centered and the feminine and the masculine don't work together in order to produce life, you're going to produce death in the church. And so churches that um, marginalize women, don't allow women to serve or give them sort of a, uh, you know, a role that just to keep them happy, if you will. This is the failure of the church. And a healthy church is served by both um, male and female, you know, in, in leadership, working in tandem. This is the key. We cannot accomplish anything unless we work in tandem with Yahweh, our God. If we try to do it on our own, you know what happens. It's, it doesn't work out well. It becomes dysfunctional. And at the same token, we don't just kick back, throw up our feet and say, God, just do it. I'm just going to wait around and watch while you wave your magic wand and make everything okay. It doesn't work that way. And so the idea is that both work together and then together they're strong and things uh, go from dysfunction to functional. So this is the nature of the spirit in the home. It's interesting that the, the rabbis would call the Shekinah uh, something that is indescribable beauty. So that feminine essence in the home uh, is described as beautiful. So you think about Rachel and um, Sarah, weren't they all being described as these beautiful women that you know, other women, men wanted, but this, the idea of the Shekinahs being this, this beautiful, radiant bride, this, this brilliant light. And so th this was manifested through the matriarchs. Uh, let me just read this quote. This is, uh, I don't like to quote from the Zohar and, and I'm just, uh, it's not something I study. Uh, I, I'm an ancient Near East focused person, but every once in a while I find a quote that's pretty good. So bear with me. Uh, so the Shekinah, that feminine essence, the divine presence in the time of Abraham, our father is called Sarah. And in the time of Isaac, our father is called Rebecca. And in the time of Jacob, our father is called Rachel. So I thought that was a pretty good expression of, of that. And you see, you can't function without the spirit, can you? And so a home cannot function without the presence uh, of the, the divine presence of, that's manifested as feminine, as the woman. It doesn't work. You can't just have one. And that's, we see that failure uh, in a lot of ways, just in, in real physical terms in our culture. So I had mentioned before this, this covenant language, it's always related to marriage. Everything is related to marriage. It always goes back to and um, may I just say a word, because I know there's women out there that can't bear children. This isn't a judgment on that. This doesn't have anything to do with you physically, whether you can produce life or not. Okay, so that's, that's a whole nother area. We're just talking about how do you make for a healthy community? And so you have a role in the community uh, and maybe you have adopted children or maybe you're working with uh, families that need, for example, I tell people all the time now, uh, 
especially when everyone was stuck at home, that there were a lot of homeschooling families that needed people to go in and uh, not homeschooling, but kids who were in public school and they were home now and the parents didn't know what to do and they needed help. And so I would encourage uh, some of the women that I knew to go into and, and start and help those families with, with educating the children. So that's a separate topic. Okay. So we're, we're not talking about, we're, we're talking about how do we build the kingdom? And so everybody, regardless of your quote, physical situation, the father has tasked you and given you gifts and talents for you to be able to build up the kingdom. It's about the kingdom folks. It's about expanding the kingdom on earth. And it's about you finding your place in the kingdom in order to serve and to make the kingdom move across the entire earth. Um, this is another, I'm a big fan of N.T. Wright. If, and if you're not familiar with him, I encourage you to read some of his books. But this I thought was a very cool um, quote as well. And he says, um, as an advanced sign of creation's restoration, you see that creation language again. And with it, the restoration of the male and female nature of image bearing humankind, it's male and female, Abraham and Sarah are enabled to bear a son. Okay, so that idea, this again, this creation language is infused throughout the Bible. All I would venture to say, especially in, the, in Genesis, all of our stories, all of our Bible stories have within them the idea of recreation language. Again, it's to build the kingdom. The kingdom is built through us and the kingdom is expanded through us, obviously under the sovereignty of our God, Yahweh, but we have a role, we have things that we have to do. So uh, those of you who've studied marriage, I have a series called Marriage in Israel, and I mean, we could just do a two hour just on that, but hopefully you know that there is more than one stage of marriage, there's two stages of marriage, and in the two stages of marriage, uh, one stage is the betrothal, so where a man would take a wife and set her apart for the time that we call it kiddushin. And then there's a gap, a period of time in between the betrothal and the full stage of marriage. And so when the actual marriage comes along, uh, we call it, it's sometimes called face-to-face -face because that's when the veil is removed. You'll remember in Corinthians when it talks about being face to face, that's that's marriage language right there. So the veil is removed. Um, they call the second stage nisuin, which means to enter into the hupa. And so then face to face, and what's the purpose? To produce life, to bring forth life. And so we know that at the time of Mount Sinai, when the children of Israel are uh, at the mountain, some of the commentaries will say it was as though the mountain were lifted up and the children of Israel stood under the mountain and uh, in the, it was like the canopy, like the wedding canopy. It's kind of interesting. But that, uh, that whole idea of this the betrothal being the sta first stage of marriage and then waiting for the face-to-face -face or the full stage of marriage. And so Again, I go back to the premise I made at the very beginning is that at Mount Sinai, we have the children of Israel receiving the Torah, being betrothed, if you will, to Yahweh. 
and all of that went with that. And then we have this long period of history, it feels like, until the time of Yeshua. And I would say the completion of things would be as we get to Acts 1 and 2, in which Yeshua ascends Mount of Olives. And towards the end of this, as, as I get to it, we're going to talk about the significance of the Mount of Olives. Because think about it, he didn't ascend from Mount Zion or Mount Zion where the temple was. Okay, if you'll remember, and there's a reason for that. Um, but he ascended his enthronement, if you will. So let me just make mention when a king was being coronated, typically what happened, as Solomon's a good example. He went down to the Gihon Springs, if you'll recall, on a donkey, and part of, this, of the ceremony took place there. And then when the first part of the ceremony was done, the king would ascend the mountain to take his seat on the throne, which was on top of the mountain in the temple on top of the mountain. So we see that. So now we're going to see kind of the same thing. Yeshua, if you remember, with his death and burial, he went down into the earth. And now we're going to see him in as part of the enthronement ritual, he's going to ascend the Mount of Olives in this case. And he will, uh, and we'll talk about what's on the Mount of Olives, but he will ascend the Mount of Olives to take his place on the throne. And so we have these again from Sinai, Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai to the Mount of Olives. And then of course, most of the Bible sandwiched in between. Um, again, uh, I want to make note uh, the number seven, which is clearly a very frequently used number in scripture. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a chapter that didn't relate to seven or something. Uh, a number of scholars, um, Victor Hurwitz comes to mind. He wrote a book called I Have Built You an Exalted House, but he found in his research that this is common in other uh, cultures of the ancient world, that the number seven had to do with house building. So we think about, uh, goodness, all the various, you know, the whole festival cycle, right, is just sevens from the beginning to the end. You know, you, you look at the, the uh, book of Revelation, like how many sevens can you find? As I said, I think practically every chapter has sevens in it. And so, the I, I know we would say, if I asked you, what does the number seven mean? You would say it means completion or something along those lines, but it completion of what? <laughs> so the idea is it's a completion of a house. So sevens is very much related to house building and house completion. So think about when we go from the Passover season to Shavuot, we go through seven weeks of seven days till we come to Shavuot, which is the Feast of Sevens, the Feast of Weeks, it's the same thing. Think of it in terms of, this is house building language. This is the completion of a house. So again, from Sinai to Olives is going to be the completion of the house in essence. Um, and we'll talk about how Yeshua sends out his disciples. I'm not quite ready for that. So I'm gonna go back to Genesis chapter one and into two talked about the covenant, heaven and the earth coming together, not necessarily uh, literal as we see it, but the idea of two elements coming together, male and female, heaven is male, earth is female, coming together. 
and the, the I think it's 2-1, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. That word completed in Hebrew is kala, which is a bride. So we have this joining together in all of their hosts. So that's 2-1. Uh, and if we go down a couple of verses, I believe it's 2-4, it'll say something like, these, well, the Hebrew is these are the toldot. So these are the records, these are the accounts, the, the, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. Now, toldot uh, from the Hebrew means to bring forth children. So I always puzzled over this verse because basically it's saying these are the bringing forth of children when the heaven and the earth were created. At the time when Adonai Elohim, our God, made the heavens, made the earth and the heavens. So I'm going, well, I don't get that. Like, how on earth does heaven and earth bring forth children? That doesn't make any sense to me until we understand it in covenant language. The coming together of, of the of king, God, ruler with his bride, Israel, his people coming together and producing life, bringing forth, if you will, the sons of God. Okay, uh, as an aside, the term sons of God is very common in the ancient world. In fact, every ruler who took the throne, who inherited the throne, was enthroned after his father was called the son of God. So, for example, Caesar was called the son of God. So you can imagine in the Gospels, we, we've set up this showdown now between Yeshua, the son of God, and Caesar, the son of God. But this idea of the heavens and the earth coming together and bringing forth light. So I just caution you against thinking about everything totally literally. On the other side of it, because I, I, I get asked this all the time, it's, it's not that everything is metaphorical or allegorical. It's not what I'm saying. The backdrop of the scriptures is absolutely historical. We got real people marrying other real people, living in real cities, going to real places and doing real things. But the writers are trying to get us past that. Yes, the foundation in, you know, is a literal foundation, but what is the writer trying to communicate to us that goes beyond the text? I say sometimes what's missing from the text is actually just as important as what's in the text. You should be, when you're reading the scriptures, you should be asking yourself a myriad of questions because let's face it, there's a lot of holes in the text, aren't there? They, the, the, the writers do not think it's that important to fill us in on every single detail. Now, part of that's because the folks in the ancient world understood a lot about their world that we don't understand, and so they didn't see the necessity of doing that. But by leaving certain things out, it means they're emphasizing other things. And so those are things to take notice of. So I know I drifted off here a little bit, but that's really important. So we want to get, we want to understand that not everything is so literal that we, we've locked ourselves in a box. And we have to be able to say that there's more to the text than what we think or what we know. And the area of ancient Near East study is challenging. There's a ton of material. It's hard to wade through it all. And there is no, there's a lot of you are never going to read those books. And, and I get that. So when people like me come along to at least help be a bridge.
but we understand that it was written to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. And so it's not written to us, but we can benefit from it because life is, you know, history is patterns repeated. And so what happens in the past will happen again in the future. So I hope that makes sense. Sorry for digressing just a little bit here. Uh, I, I also, uh, it's not my intention to, to go through this uh, specifically, but if we, we could literally go through the, uh, the, the cycle, the, the agricultural cycle of celebrating the festivals, and we could find elements of a, the marriage, because I mentioned earlier, everything's in terms of seven. So the, the Passover seven days, and then we go seven days of seven weeks up to Shavuot. And then when we come into the fall feast, um, technically between Rosh Hashanah, the, the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur, there's seven days if you take out those days, the two for Rosh Hashanah, the one for Yom Kippur. And then, of course, you know, we, when we come to, um, to Sukkot. So there's a lot of sevens going on. But again, that has everything to do with, with house building. So just to briefly mention at Passover, Passover would be uh, the time leading up to the initial betrothal contract where the bride price would be paid. Um, it's obviously not the actual betrothal because that is um, connected to Shavuot, but it's the, the, uh, the sort of the leading up to the covenant. Uh, it has covenantal elements that will lead up to Shavuot. So those two festivals are connected. In fact, Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Seven is not completed. Uh, I, I should say Passover is not completed until we get through to Shavuot. So the festivals are connected. They can't be separated. Um, so the next festival, we, you know, we have Passover and then we've got first fruits, the counting of the Omer and the Shavuot. And I'm not gonna go into all of that, but that leads us to the contract, if you will, the, the sealing of the betrothal contract, the seven weeks of seven days. And, you know, th this is a whole study in itself. Uh, but the idea of with each week, there's this elevation in status. So you sort of start at this bottom level, if you will, and you're, as you are ascending a mountain, so you are ascending through the seven weeks of seven days till you reach the top of the mountain, the Shavuot and the giving of the Torah. We see the same thing with Yeshua. He's ascending the mountain. And then at the end of that, he will be at, at the top of the mountain. So again, the idea of, of this being between two mountains from the, from the Torah to the living Torah, I would say, from, from that betrothal to, to a, a marriage. Now, we could go into the whole fall feast and the fullness of the marriage. I, I don't really want to go there. I just wanted to draw your attention to the significance between those two mountains. Uh, just as an aside, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, uh, again, they all have context with kingship and coronation and this idea of face-to-face, -face, the fullness and consummation of the marriage at Rosh Hashanah, entering into the chuppah, the seven days, Yom Kippur, and then we have Sukkot, the banquet. So there's a lot there. And uh, again, I refer you to my, um, my website, Foundations in Torah, because there's a teaching on that. 
So uh, I like this particular verse from the Psalm, Psalm 19. It says that in them, speaking of the heavens, he places a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from the bridal chamber, that word hoopah, the bridal chamber. Remember the hoopah uh, the, is the inner chamber of the temple, the holy of holies. So this place for the sun. Now, uh, let me also mention, of course, we have a sun and moon. I understand that, but you'll remember, I hope, the, the, uh, the dream of Joseph. Do you remember that? Where Jacob was the sun and Rachel was the moon and all of the, the tribe were the stars. So that's what they did in the ancient world. So you, you typically would see like Osiris or the, or the god Ra in Egypt, they were the sun gods. So they associated that world of the heavens with their rulership, their elite world of rulership. And so Jacob being associated with the sun has to do with kingship. And the moon also, we see that with Rachel. So here we see the sun uh, coming out of the bridal chamber or the, the, uh, the king coming out of the bridal chamber and with his bride. And they have basically within the bridal chamber produced life. And so we call that chamber the hoopah. And again, with Mount Sinai and with the Mount of Olives, it's also going to be related to the hoopah, the inner chamber uh, of where the, the bride and groom come together. Okay, I'm gonna shift gears here for just a little bit because I really want you to understand the concept of mountains in the ancient world. And once you do, this is going to open up scriptures, it's gonna blow your mind when you start to see it. Um, because I don't know about you, you know, in fact, I'm sitting here and there's a mountain right in front of my window. So, you know, that's a mountain. But what did the, how did the ancients view the mountain? Well, how was, how did they process it? How did, how did they view it? So when we go back to creation, you'll remember, you know, it appears the world is filled with water, right? And then there's a separation in which uh, dry ground appears. And so the waters are pushed back and dry ground appears. Now the ancients would call that dry ground, the primordial hill. I know that sounds kind of weird, but for them, that was the first fixed point on the earth and they associated it with the mountain. So kind of picture in your mind, the waters receding, separating and dry ground appears. And that dry ground is the fixed point of stability and it becomes a mountain. And I'm actually just finishing up my book, uh, The Temple Revealed in Noah's Ark, because that the whole idea of the ark sitting on top of a mountain is classic in the ancient Near East world and the waters receding. So what we have with the Noah story is a recreation story from Genesis chapter one, in which this fixed point, this mountain appears, the dry ground, the water recedes, and Noah's Ark is sitting on top of the mountain because that's where temples were located. Um, on top of the mountains where the temple was, where the king would be seated on his throne, where he would rule and reign from. So we're seeing Noah in his role of king. And in fact, his name, Noah, Noah comes from Rach, which means, Nach, excuse me, means rest. So it's not rest the way we think of it. I think I'll take an eight hour snooze. The idea of rest for the ancients was that the king was firm 
firmly ensconced on his throne and the king was responsible to bring peace and order and shalom to the world. And so that was the purpose for Noah. He was to bring rest or he was to bring peace. That means no more warring with foreign enemies. That would, means that you know enemies are not gonna destroy you. The king is on the throne and his job was to make sure that uh, enemies didn't come in and destroy uh, the, the nation. So that's the idea of the, of the of the mountain. Now, when you think about a mountain, think about for the the ancient world, the mountain was a real. It's kind of big, and it's like the biggest, stablest, fixed thing you could think of in the natural world, right? And so the the mountain became the connecting point between heaven and earth. How they were connected by a mountain. Again, the temple was that place too. The mountain held heaven and earth and the underworld together. What we would call, we call it a tripartite structure. So everything in temple language is related to, to threes, the tripartite. So heaven, earth, and sea. You're going to see, uh, hopefully you go back over the scripture. So for example, in Exodus 19, uh, with the commandments on the, seven, uh, the fourth day, um, not the fourth day, seventh day is the fourth commandment with the Sabbath. It, it even says in there that God, he is the God of heaven, earth, and sea. And that's because that is a temple picture of the cosmos, everything in threes. So the mountain, again, held together those three, heaven, earth, and sea. And so uh, the God would build uh, a temple on top of the mountain. They call it the cosmic mountain. But again, the key, the temple, uh, excuse me, the mountain became a source of life. It was the seas represented chaos for the ancients. And then the seas came to be connected with the nations because the nations represented chaos. They were outside the covenant. And so the source of life was tied to the mountain because it was a fixed and stable point that brought order. It was, the mountain was associated with order and stability and the seas were associated with chaos, disorder, and decreation. So the mountain became what was understood in the ancient world as a governmental structure. So the, the government, if you will, uh, was operating from the top of the mountain. And you'll see that too as you go through and you're reading your scriptures. The tops of mountains become very important because, again, that's the location of the temple. It's the place where, so the priests, of course, ascended from the people to their god. The god was in the, the temple, and that's at the oracle, and the, the priests would receive marching orders or, you know, to take back to the people. But the idea of the mountain was the place for, in Israel's economy, was a place where God and his people met to, in communion on top of the mountain. So I hope this is making sense because I know it's probably not like much you've heard, but this is the world in which the Bible was written. So we're trying to get back to that world and then we're trying to understand it going forward. And so what you find 
anytime you see uh, is in modern the modern world dealing with government okay they're not necessarily on a mountain i understand that but that world functions in in there's a gulf between the world of government and those the elites uh, you know who operate and rule over you and the people and that's been around since the beginning of time so the mountain came to represent teaching the mountain came to represent the, a refuge if you will from the powers of chaos so the mountain becomes the it's the embodiment of the temple again i hope this makes sense i know for some of you this may be something new and you've never heard this before so bear with me and then you can always listen to this over again right this is so i'm i am covering a lot of territory here and again i'm introducing you to concepts that some of you might not be familiar with so the mountain of god as i said is a place of refuge so we have we go from the garden of eden gani dan is on a mountain we see noah on mount ararat we see uh Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and of course they build the, the tabernacle, which is a reflection of Mount Sinai. And we move forward. And when the children of Israel enter the land, we see Mount Zion, where uh, Solomon builds the temple. And then the, really the final mountain with a name where something significant happens is the Mount of Olives. So the mountain of God is meant to be a bulwark against the adversary against instability, disorder, and chaos. So the mountain represented order and stability. So think about all the times that Yeshua went up on a high mountain. Scripture is purposely vague on which mountain it is, okay? Because it's not important. The concept is, what is he doing on top of the mountain? Let's think for a moment about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And it says uh, there that he went up on the mountain and he sat. So you go, well, I mean, do we really have to add that information? Why did the writer say that he went up on the mountain and he sat? Because he's trying to communicate something to us about kingship. Because the king sat on top of the mountain in, you know, if the, obviously if there was a temple there, there would be a throne. But he is making, uh, he is declaring his kingship by sitting. And then we go through, I might talk about it a little bit later, but we go through the, uh, the what we call the Beatitudes, which really, uh, the Hebrew is Ashrei. And it is really, I think, uh, kind of a recreation of the Torah itself. So we, you know, we have the Torah and we have the instructions and, and what governs the nation. Now we have Yeshua on a mountain. We don't know which mountain. And he is saying, he is taking it to the next level of how the kingdom operates and how it needs to be governed. So what do we do? Like he goes up on the mountain. And we argue over what mountain the Sermon on the Mountain, Sermon on the Mount was. And we really have no idea. And we could speculate and we could probably come up with something. The point isn't which mountain he was on is the point what was he doing on that mountain? What was he trying to communicate? And in this case, again, we have the Beatitudes, which I believe are the governing documents for the kingdom of heaven coming forth. How do we go out and we're to expand the kingdom? How do we operate? 
And so I would suggest that those all actually between chapters five and six, all the stuff that's in there, all of the information, if you will, about how the kingdom operates is in sandwiched in there and gives us an idea of how to go forth. Um, I mentioned, uh, let me move on here. <laughs> I know some of you have questions. Uh, you please feel free to email me and uh, the ladies will post my email address for you, uh, if you if you want more information. So let me just read this. This is out of Exodus as well. So now with all of this in your mind, let, let's just look at what Moses did in Exodus. So it says that he went up, he went onto the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. So immediately you should be going the cloud. What's the cloud? Remember God manifests himself in a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. Think about the high priest. As he goes into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, and he goes in five different times. And one of the times he goes in, he brings the incense and the shovel. And he lays the shovel down with the coals on the shovel, and he puts the incense on the hot burning coals, and it just kind of explodes into a cloud. And the idea is of the high priest in the cloud, face to face at the oracle of God, where God speaks and the glory of God is in that place. And so Moses went up in the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of Adonai stayed on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for how long? Six days. So you should be going right back to Genesis 1-1. This is a recreation or a new creation event. And on the seventh day, the Sabbath, he called to Moses, God did, out of the cloud. Think of the high priest as well. And to the people of Israel, the glory of Adonai looked like a raging fire on top of the mountain. So let me just throw this out because if you think about Yeshua on the Mount of Olives, his ascension, one of the things that took place on the Mount of Olives, in fact, the Mount of Olives is called the Mount of Anointment, the Mount of Anointing, because that's where the Mashiach would return to. But on top of the mountain, if you'll recall, when they had to determine when the festival calendar began. So with each month, they had to determine the start of the month. They sent, uh, they made uh, signal fires on top of the mountain. And then they could see that they go from mountain to mountain. And then these witnesses would go before the Sanhedrin and, and the Sanhedrin would rule whether these witnesses had actually seen the the new moon, right, for the beginning of the, of the festival. So the place where the signal fire was lit was on top of the Mount of Olives. So there would be a raging fire on top of the Mount of Olives, just like we see here with Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And that's the place, the top of the Mount of Olives, where Yeshua ascended and he was officially enthroned and crowned king. We can look at a prelude to that, and you can see this in Matthew 17 and uh, Luke 9. And it says uh, they were speaking of Yeshua's, the, the word there that is usually translated departure, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the, the word, if translated from the Greek, is exodus. Isn't that interesting? They were speaking of Yeshua's exodus 
And after six days, Yeshua brings them to a high mountain. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white and a cloud overshadowed him. Now, did that not just sound like what we had with Moses on Mount Sinai? Yes, it did, because there's a point to this. The writers are trying to tie Yeshua to Moses and to what Moses did on top of Mount Sinai, Yeshua would be doing on top of Mount, the Mount of Olives. Now, here we, we call this the transfiguration and his face shone like the sun and a cloud overshadowed him. Again, we do not know which mountain. And I've heard all kinds of discussions and debates on which mountain it is. And I'm going, it doesn't matter which mountain it is. It's what is the meaning of the mountain, the place of, of order, the place where God meets in communion with his people and specifically with his king on top of the mountain. Now, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. And it's it, the way it starts out is it says that when Yeshua saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, again, unnamed. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So again, it's communi communicating something about kingship, about him being seated on top of the mountain. I'm telling you, there's a whole lot of this all through scripture, and we don't catch it because we don't understand the terms. And so in the story of the Gospels, uh, they do spend a great deal of time talking about Yeshua going up on a mountain. And it's not just, okay, some random mountain in Israel. Uh, it, it, it's The writer is trying to communicate something to us. Uh, and so let me read from, uh, this is in, I believe it's Acts 2, 1 or 2. When the day of Shavuot had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were seat, sitting. And tongues like fire spread out and appeared to them and settled on each one of them. So now we have to take it back to Shavuot at Sinai. And what we had the whole, all the language of the children of Israel coming out of, the, of Egypt and crossing the sea. And we'll talk about the crossing of the sea because that's new creation language as well. And they come into the wilderness and you see Moses ascending in a fire. Remember in, in Exodus 19, it talks about God is a fire, a raging fire on top of the mountain. So this at Shavuot, now where are they at Shavuot here in the God or in Acts? It says they come together in one place. Uh, it's a place, the Hebrew word for place is makom, which is another name for God, but they're, on, they're in the temple. So it's Shavuot, they're in the temple and we are seeing Exodus, uh, Exodus 24, Exodus 19, all those various places. We're seeing that being played out once again at the, at the time of Acts. In fact, I would just suggest as you're reading the book of Acts, you start looking for all the connections with the Exodus. In fact, I did a whole series called, instead of what did, you, what did, uh, what did Jesus say? Or what, did, what would Jesus do, right? You remember that whole thing, they wore wristbands and, and the whole bit. What, what, what would Jesus do? 
I named it, What Did Yeshua Mean? And in that series, it's also on my website, I explain how the entire New Testament is a replay of the Exodus. As you go through chapter by chapter and you see what he does, what Yeshua does, he's replaying everything Moses does. And the whole, ex, it's, it is just a fascinating study. So by the time you get to the book of Acts, now you're going to see the Acts coming from the Exodus story. Now, it's not going to be exact. It's not meant to be exact, but there's elements of it. And so as you read through the, the book of Acts, I really want to encourage you to look at it through the lens of the Exodus. So we see them on top of the mountain in the temple, Mount Zion, and we see these tongues of fire, which takes us right back to Mount Sinai. One of the, um, in the book of Enoch, uh, it, it, it talks about the Holy of Holies. Now remember Moses is on top of the mountain in the cloud where there's a raging fire. And it's considered to be the oracle of God. It's the place where God speaks. And you'll re maybe you remember that it talks about uh, the, the 70 nations. So it's the place where God speaks. And one of the terms for the Holy of Holies is the house of the tongues of fire. That's, you can read about that in the book of Enoch and it's in several other places. So here we are on top of the mountain. We're on Mount Zion. We are in the temple, well, they're in the temple, and the tongues of fire. Coming from the house, the house of the tongues of fire was the holy of holies. And what I would suggest, so God's presence was in a fire on top of the mountain in the throne room of God. And it looks to me like in this scenario that the fire of God, the presence of God, the divine oracle of God is coming out from inside the temple and moving out into where the people are, probably in the court of the women. And the people are going to take this out to the four corners of the earth. So the presence of God in, in his people with the wisdom of God reflected as tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit. Our job is to walk in that and to take it out into the marketplace. Because folks, we're, we're at a place now this isn't all going to turn. We are in a heap of mess. And this baby is not going to turn around except for his people walking according to uh, to his plan and purpose filled with the tongues of fire, his presence, the oracle of God, the wisdom of God in us and taking that out. We're, we're at a place now where we have people ruling over us who have absolutely no wisdom and no common sense. And Proverbs starts out, which is Proverbs written by the king, Solomon. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These, these people ruling over us have absolutely no fear of God. They have rejected God. They do not fear God. And because of that, they have no wisdom and no common sense. We're being ruled by insanity. And so the only place for order to be returned and the chaos to be pushed back is in the lives of his people. As we as individuals and as a community and, and in, in our families, 
we must engage and move out into the marketplace and bring with us the power and the wisdom of God to turn things around. As I mentioned earlier, God isn't just going to wave a magic wand and make everything okay. He works in tandem with his people. He empowers us. He gives us the gifts and, and he gives us exactly what we need to make a difference in the world. And so I want to just encourage you, people are rising up and I, I'm not even talking about the whole political thing, which I could, but another day. But I want to encourage you that God is, he is on the move. I am seeing miracles now in the lives of people that I have not seen in a very long time. So I know that something is happening and that's because we are in a pressure cooker and a crucible. We are going to be experiencing persecution and hate the likes of which we have never known. But God has equipped us through the power of his spirit and given us the wisdom that we need to go out there and do what we got to do. And so the whole, this all goes back to Genesis one and the whole idea of the creation. And so creation is upended, destroyed, uh, whatever, through the, through the wrong actions of human beings. And so when we violate God's order and principles and his wisdom, you see what happens. It upends creation. And so in our own lives, we want to see creation restored within us so that we are functioning, so that we are reproducing after like kind, so that we are bringing forth life from our actions and our deeds, who we are and what we do. And everything goes, nothing functions the way it's supposed to when we, when we as humans violate God's order. And that order includes societal order. And we are in a state of chaos and meltdown. And uh, it's up to us. Uh, Micah, you're familiar with these verses of Micah and Isaiah. The law will go forth from Zion. Okay, so why does it say that? Because Zion is the temple. It's the location of the throne. It's where the king is seated on the throne and the one who's responsible to maintain order. And the, the, the way he governs, the kingdom is in our economy is through the, the Torah of God. So the Torah goes forth from Zion. It's not like it just goes forth from the mountain. It's a specific place. It's the place of government. The Torah goes forth from the place of government out to the whole world to bring healing and restoration and order to the whole world. And so we see that human sin just affects the created order. You know, you know, as well as I, that, you know, a sin when actually one of the, um, I read this somewhere that the best definition of sin was, uh, means the abuse of power. I thought that was pretty interesting. And so there's always an abuse of power when there's sin and it upends the created order. Everything's about getting back to creation and reproducing and bringing forth life. And so nations will be held accountable for violating the created order. And that means us as well. There are consequences for breaking the covenant between heaven and earth. And uh, this is something, uh, this is from Philo from uh, first century. He said, the world is in harmony with the law and the law with the world. And so breaking the law affected the creation. So when we violate 
when we upend the, the, um, the order that God has established, it affects all of creation and creation is now in a state of, of, de, uh, of it being contaminated and it's descending. And so the Bible is first and foremost about recreation, bringing forth life. And that means two parties coming together. So when you broke the covenant in, in Israel's world, you were, you were causing destruction to the creation. So I don't want, I can't, I don't have time to get into this too much, but there's a lot of um, cosmic language in scripture, right? You see um, the moon darkening, uh, the sun darkening, the moon darkening, stars falling from the sky, all of this kind of cosmic language or this cosmic upheaval, these, these disturbances in the cosmos. This is language that's used when a covenant is broken. So when you break a covenant between the two parties, you are destroying the house. We go all the way back to Genesis 1.1, the idea of house building, dynasty building. It's not just a physical house, it's, it's the dynastic house. And so when you break the relationship between God and his people or between a husband and a wife or between the king and his people, you are literally causing the cosmos to, to be upended. And so the destruction of the temple is basically synonymous with the, with the, the with cataclysmic activity in the cosmos. I hope that makes sense. So for example, when you're reading in Matthew 24, all of that language in there, and we, we do a lot of weird things with that, but it's really speaking of the destruction of the temple. The same with the book of, of Revelation. So the, the ruler, those who ruled over you ruled from the top of the mountain, again, the throne in the temple, and they were typically identified with stars. I, I think I mentioned the story of, of the, the dream of Joseph what the sun, the moon, and the stars, the stars were bowing down to him. So the stars were related to the, the other tribe leaders. So leaders and rulers in the ancient world were sometimes referred to as stars. And so the king would be referred to as the sun, uh, S-U-N, the, the wife, his bride would be the moon, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so we're winding down here. I've only got like 10, 15 minutes left here. So I want to kind of... Um, close out with the, um, the whole uh, Mount of Olives thing, if you will. Matthew 24, because that's kind of a big deal. Now you'll remember coming out of 23 and moving into 24, Yeshua is at the temple and then they cross the Kidron Valley and they go to the Mount of Olives and where they are it says Yeshua sat on the Mount of Olives. Like when I read that, that just spoke volumes to me after all the stuff I've been talking about here. He sat. So there's, there is a declaration of him as king on the Mount of Olives. This is kind of preparing the way for them for the time when he ascends in Acts chapter 2. So he sat on the mountain and his disciples are sitting there with him. And they're saying, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? 
And what does he do? He goes and talks about, he looks down at the temple and not one stone will be left on another. And so he starts talking about the destruction of the temple, which is going to happen in 70 common era by the Romans. And so what do we do? We try to make that fit into who knows what, but that's the context for Matthew 24. So the destruction of the temple was the outward sign that the covenant had been broken and the old order was going to be passed away. Now you might remember the temple had become quite a corrupt place. And uh, again, I don't have time to go into all those details, but the it was uh, it was a very corrupt bribery, graft, extortion. Remember, the it wasn't the high priest from the line of Aaron that was running the show. It was Annas, who was the godfather of of Jerusalem, putting in his family. Um, he was in bed with the Romans, so it was it was kind of a corrupt place. And so Yeshua is declaring that corrupt place, that temple. The outward signs that the old order is passing away, but there is a new kingdom coming when the old order ends. And the whole chapter goes into nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom and famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and powers of heaven shaken and uh, the sea turning to blood and the sun and the moon and stars, all that stuff. It's not literal, but it's talking about the un. These are the consequences of breaking a covenant and the consequences appear in the cosmos. So the cosmos, all of this stuff is a reflection of what it looks like when a covenant is broken. And when a covenant is broken, a house is destroyed, whether it be the physical house, Mount Z, uh, the temple on Mount Zion, or whether it's the dynastic house that will be destroyed. But Yeshua is going to pick it up because we are going to be his kingdom of priests and we are going to serve him in that capacity. A new order is coming. A new kingdom is going to function. And I mentioned how Sanhedrin to confirm the appearance of the, of the new moon, they would do the signal fires on top of the Mount of Olives. So we're gonna kind of end this now um, just with the Mount of Anointment, the Mount of Olives. The Mount of the, the concept of the Mount of Olives goes all the way back to Abraham. And I want you to go back and read that. I believe ver, uh, chapter 12, because it says that Abraham pitched his tent on at Bethel, which means house of God. So likely referring to um, uh, Mount Moriah and the house of God. And then it says that he moved to the east and he built an altar. So way back then, Abraham built an altar to the mountain to the east, and that's the Mount of Olives. So there was an altar going all the way back. Now, in, this is my opinion, and you can read the, uh, I wrote about this in my book, The Temple Revealed in the Garden. I would submit, and we can't prove this because we're, we're dealing with a mountain, and it says in uh, Genesis 22 is the mountain in the region of Moriah. So we don't know that it's necessarily Mount Moriah. And I would submit the whole story of Isaac and Abraham ascending the mountain like Yeshua would, was referring to the Mount of Olives. And so at the top of the mountain, Isaac was going to be offered up. And I also submit that that whole imagery there is a picture of, of anointing of the enthronement of the king. In this case, it would have been Isaac. 
But what grows on the Mount of Olives? I think we have olives. And so the olives that were used, the, the uh, presses, uh, the pressing of the oil of the olives, the oil was used for the anointing of the king. Um, David, King David referred to himself as a green olive tree in the house of God. Now that wasn't literal, but he was speaking of himself as the king in the house of God and he connected himself to the olive tree. There was a special place at the top of, of, of the Mount of Olives uh, called the Rosh. There was a mikvah, an immersion bath up there for the priests. And that was the place where the red heifer was slaughtered and burned and where the priest took uh, water and uh, added the ashes from the red heifer and would sprinkle those who had corpse uncleanness and so that they could be restored and they could go back and serve in the temple in some fashion or whatever. But again, I would submit this has to do with government, the top of the mountain, the mountain of government, of kings, of powers, and that um, the idea here, it, uh, we just read recently in the Torah portion about the red heifer. And I made the statement, I, I did a teaching recently, and I said to everyone, why would Yeshua tell everybody, his disciples, etc., to go out into all the nations, to the uttermost parts of the world, knowing that no matter where they went, they would be subjected to corpse uncleanness and could not be restored, right? Because the only place you could remove the contamination was for the ashes of the red heifer to be, uh, for the, the cow to be burned and for the ashes to be mixed with water and for the priest to sprinkle and enable you to go back into the temple or whatever service you had to do because you had come across a dead body. And yet he is sending out all his disciples all over the world, knowing that they are not going to be able to go back to uh, Jerusalem every other day. So his death, his burial, and his resurrection has a supernatural element to it in which his people, his priests, his kings, part of his dynasty, as we believe by faith through our allegiance to him, that we would be cleansed and purified and we will be able to enter and go out into the marketplace. We will not be contaminated by the world. Our job is to lift the world up and to purify the world. So I think that's the message that he was giving to them and he was giving them that message from the place, the Mount of Olives, the place where he ascended from. So as we go back and we see from Sinai to Olives, this picture of the, the dynasty of, of God going even back to the son of God, Adam. And we see that, that God had a, a purpose, uh, obviously for his king, his Messiah, to, to cleanse us and restore us and make us whole in order to be his servants, in order to elevate the status of the world. So I just want to close on this point you do not have to worry about the world contaminating and destroying you. Your job is to go out and to elevate the world and to bring the world into the presence of God. So I hope this all made sense, covered a lot of ground, and I really appreciate you all being here. And uh, again, if you have any questions, feel free to email me. And uh, you know, my website, foundationsintorah.com is filled with material and uh, also you can go to Israel TV Network because I film for them and so some of my shows are there. 
And my books uh, will really help uh, uncover a lot of this, The Temple Revealed in Creation, Priests and King, uh, no, excuse me, Restoring, no, I don't even remember. The Temple Revealed in Creation, A Portrait of the Family, and The Temple Revealed in the Garden, Priests and Kings. And my do, new book should be out in time for Rosh Hashanah, The Temple Revealed in Noah's Ark, uh, from, order, uh, from Chaos to Order. So uh, you can get the two of the, uh, the Garden and Creation on Amazon right now. And I believe that the ladies have given you a link. Uh, so you can just click on there and, and go right to and get the book. So uh, Charlie, still with me? I, I am. I'm, that's quite a calling to tell us, go elevate the world, ladies. Go elevate I, the world. Like I know. It's a huge... It's a huge call and it's not the way we ever look at it. No, it isn't. And you know, I, I was sitting here and I had wrote in the chats as when you're talking, I thought I saw Abraham saying that he saw the ram caught in the thicket and I'm saying he called the lamb caught in the tree. Did he see the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth? Did he go up when he went up? Did he see all of that? And I mean, that's what I've always believed. I present that. Okay, but. so we don't know. There is some... Uh, a little bit of controversy there that the lamb could be the ram. Don't We don't know for sure. But if it actually was a ram caught in the thicket, it's probably a picture of King David because King David referred to himself, actually Solomon as well, as rams when they were elevated and enthroned. They became rams. So that's kind of interesting. Wow, we could do this all day. I, I have a, we have every lady saying, let's do a watch party. We need to watch this again. And all of us in our jammies and a watch party together and <laughs> bring it. I need, I need wine. My, my brain's <laughs> melting. So, well, thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to have you back. We'll do some teachings. I would love to do some stuff, even with your earlier books. If we used it, oh, a yeah. couple hours, I just do a little marriage thing. And I was like, wait, <laughs> dropping. I'm trying to catch everything. <laughs> yes. Well, there's, yes. you know, it's, it's tough because again, having been at this for over 40 years, yeah, you know, it's hard. I, uh, You've forgotten I, I, more than we know. Let's just be honest. <laughs> Let's just put it there. You've forgotten more than we know. And we're just loving picking up the crumbs. We're just under the table grabbing them all. We love it. We love you for it. We are blessed. Thank you. Thank you so much. My and pleasure. Can't wait for your new book to come out. This is exciting. So yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I mean, I'm, I'm slaving away here trying to get that baby done. <laughs> Great. Well, we sure appreciate you. Did I have any other notes I had? Uh, uh, yeah, one thing else I would say, I was laughing because you're in the very beginning, you said, we're the voice. And I think that uh, Mary Catherine said, wow, if we're the voice, what are we saying? And that goes back up to, um, we need to go elevate the world. And if we're the voice, are we elevating the world? Or are we jumping with everybody else and tearing yeah. it down? So, yeah, so good. Exactly. So good. Well, have a blessed evening. Thank you. We pray that you are blessed for sharing this. I know we were all going to be watching the replay of this multiple times. And please don't send her questions that you have unless you've gone to her site and looked up some answers first. <laughs> I'll be the mean guy. Okay. Uh, could you, could you just be like, don't be lazy. Just go look, look it up, re watch some of her videos and then go ask and say, Hey, I watched these things. Here's what I found out. And don't take a shortcut. Just try to find it first. And I also, you know, if we, if we want to do something down the road, I think what would be nice is just to take some bite-sized topics and, and develop them out because what happens is that I've cut you know I cover a lot of ground and so 
in my quest to try to get out as much information as I could to help people grow. But I think there's something to be said about just, you know, uh, smaller increments. And, and then what we can do is we can look, actually look at scriptures that relate to that. Yes. I'm laughing because I'm writing it just a bite with Dr. Dai. And I, and this is being recorded. So we have, we all heard her say it. Okay. So have a fantastic okay. evening. Blessings to you and your family. We'll let you, you get back to them. I know that that's time for you. So thank you. Blessings to everyone. Shalom. Thank you. Shalom. Well, ladies, you get like five minutes, go run potty. I'm going to start another testimony. You can stay and watch it, or if you have to go run to the potty, and then we're going to have Deborah Flanagan rounding out the evening. I'm sure you will laugh and cry. So grab a couple of tissues and get ready to laugh a little bit. Uh, we love her so much. Can't wait to see you back in five minutes. Hello. To sum up for me while she waits is primarily that while she waits, God is, God was, and God forevermore shall be. The creator. He's the creator of the universe. He's the righteous ruler of the world, and he is the just judge. And all the while she waits, God is good. God is love. God is merciful. God is for us. Waiting authorizes us an opportunity kind of to see behind the scenes. Waiting allows us to witness the unseen battle raging for our souls. At the same time, focusing on God's powerful hand, his hand of grace and his hand of mercy that's extended to us. Waiting is going to allow us to see the greater spiritual reality behind earthly events. First Corinthians 15, 46 says, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So he shows us just like a good father. In day-to-day real-life examples, so that we, his children, can understand. First of all, while is a set period of time. It has boundaries. The next word, she. She refers to a daughter. A daughter is pretty special. A daughter in biblical times is gained by covenant promise. In grammar, the feminine gender in Hebrew reflects an awareness that something has been received. The male gender generally is to give, to act on and bespeak on behalf of someone, but a female in scripture is one who has received. To wait is to hope. Now, words change over time. Hope in English is just a weak wish. It's kind of a yearning for something that May happen, it may not happen, but I hope it happens. Not so in Hebrew. In Hebrew and in Greek, in the Bible, hope is defined as a secured promise that isn't yet received. But that promise that hoped for is as good as done. 
I'm a visual learner, so pictures help me learn. So I picture while she waits, kind of like a garden. A garden only exists because first there's a gardener. The gardener first had a plan. He designed it. He was its architect, its maker. Then the gardener prepared the ground and he had to use a plow 